Let's talk about your next patient. Okay. The next patient we saw was a 51-year-old heavy smoker who in 2006 presented with urticaria and was found to have a T1A NXMX squamous cell carcinoma, which was resected at a community hospital. At that point in time, he was not referred to a medical oncologist. No adjuvant therapy was given. I saw him about six months later on referral from his cardiologist just to talk about lung cancer in general. At that point, we proceeded with routine surveillance imaging. He did well until June of 2009 when he was noted to have a new mass in the left upper lobe. At that time, he underwent a formal staging evaluation, including mediastinoscopy, all consistent with resectable disease. And in July 9th, he had a T4 on the basis of a satellite lesion, N0, moderately differentiated adenosquamous carcinoma resected. After that, we met to discuss adjuvant chemotherapy. He wasn't a candidate for our bevacizumab clinical trial, given his history of cancer within five years in the T4 tumor. And he went on to receive cisplatin and Olympta adjuvant chemotherapy, which he struggled a bit with due primarily to asthenia and some low blood counts. And unfortunately, about five months after finishing and after one round of negative surveillance imaging, he developed worsening urticaria and fatigue and just had a repeat restaging evaluation, including a PET-CT that shows widely metastatic disease. And so we met with him actually today to discuss the new imaging findings and to think about continued therapy. Before we get into sort of the science of this, what was that meeting like? It sounds like a pretty bad situation. I'd say just to comment as an observer, I was going to make that was one of the first things I wanted to, to bring up was that in my career, I spent a lot of time teaching fellows how to break bad news to patients. But I have to tell you, it was the first time that I've ever been with an experienced physician as an observer doing it. And I thought that the way that you talked to him about it was incredibly important. The fact that you connected with him, that you guys were on a first name basis, that you were frank with him and honest with him, answered his questions, took the time to do it right. It gives me hope that oncologists and all of us are really doing a great job for our patients. And I was really struck by how well you did that. And I was also struck by how hard it is. Even you've been practicing for eight to 10 years now, and it's still hard. I mean, there's no way to look at a guy and tell him. And, you know, he, one of the things Dr. Love, when he turned to us, he said to Neil, he said, listen, he said, I got to live two more years. He said, I just need two more years. He said, you think I'm going to do that? And I think a lot of doctors would have just passed it off and said, sure, we're going to do everything we can to get you there. And you didn't. You were frank with him. You looked him in the eye and said, you know, I think that's going to be a long shot. And I really admired the way you did that because I think a lot of people don't give it that kind of thought. What was it like with this man? And what were some of, you think, his major considerations or concerns? Yeah. You know, I'm always astounded by people's courage. I rarely see people being very angry, which I think is probably one emotion which people underexpress. And I'm also amazed, as Dr. Lynch brought up, he looked at his wife and said, I told you so. You know, I knew I was going to have bad news. And I think some people have a inner sense. And he's someone who, with a perineoplastic skin condition, had some sense that something was going on. But his main joy is Little League Baseball. And I think if in truth, if he can get through this summer season, I think that will be an achievement. Let's talk about some of the medical aspects or some of the oncology aspects of this. You mentioned the skin problem. Uh, any comments about the mechanism of, of these kinds of problems, Tom? Well, it's curious. I was going to ask Neil whether he feels that the urticaria was perineoplastic and since I couldn't really get a feeling for whether it's perineoplastic or whether it's unrelated. Yeah. What's your gut? My gut is it is only in that it 
first started around the time of his first lung cancer diagnosis, got better in the interval, and then has flared subsequently. Although the time course has not always perfectly correlated. Man, I don't know of any immunologic cross-reactivity yeah. between the two, maybe. But it's certainly, there's a lot of immune phenomena, that autoimmune phenomena that we never can perfectly explain that are due to tumor antigens or, or some kind of paraneoplastic process, which it, it certainly could be. It's certainly not a classic one for non-small cell lung cancer, but I'm always impressed that there are things that we don't appreciate. I guess for Neil Love's benefit, one of the things we question in this patient, I think an interesting point for discussion is, do you consider this patient to be first line or second line metastatic at this point? Because he relapsed within four months of finishing his adjuvant therapy. Neil and I talked a lot about this in the office today. I tend to look at people who relapse within six months as definitely being second line in therapy. And I think the other thing that impressed me was how you told me that he didn't tolerate the platinum alenta terribly well. And that would also push me toward more of a second line type approach. In thinking about first line, second line, Tom, I would love to get your perspective on whether you are choosing agents based on presumptions of cross-reactivity or on presumptions of tolerance of therapy. My perception is a lot of times many second-line agents that are investigated are investigated as single agents, not a lot of doublet therapy. And in someone like him who still has a very good performance status, would you be tempted? Now, in him, I guess we have the issues of the platinum resistance, but for other folks we're seeing who may not have had the platinum as a first-line metastatic agent, how you feel about doublets in the second line or whether you stick to? So this is a very interesting point, and this actually came up during the ASCO program that we did with Neil Love's group about the question of do we revisit a platinum in second line? And I think the feeling of that group at ASCO was if it's a year, 12 months, very reasonable to go back to the well with a platinum agent or a carbo-containing regimen. In this setting for four months, I would almost never go back to the well in that setting because I think there's toxicity to platinum, and I don't think it's going to add a tremendous amount of benefit to him. I think the things I would think of for him would either be docetaxel or erlotinib. I think I was a little bit more pushed toward docetaxel because of the adenosquamous histology and the fact that the disease is fairly widespread at this point and the fact that he was a very heavy smoker. On the other hand, we do know that erlotinib does help people who are smokers in the second line and above. And if you felt strongly that erlotinib was a better choice, I think that's a great choice as well. I think the other thing that we brought up, and curious, you may want to just expound a little bit on this, was the need for a repeat biopsy. And when do you, as an experienced oncologist, decide, I want a biopsy to establish metastatic disease? And when do you decide the evidence is overwhelming? And what was your thinking here? My general feeling about it is whenever possible, I always do try to biopsy to confirm metastatic disease. And he was a bit tricky in that his initial histology was a bit, in 06, was a bit different than his histology in 09. And although we're four years out from that first cancer, I suppose theoretically it's possible. That's a recurrence. It could be a third cancer. And given the relatively bleak outlook, if this is his adenosquamous carcinoma sort of grasping at straws to try and find something else that might be a little more treatable. In terms of thinking about material for molecular studies, that's one question I had. Someone in heavy smoker, is this someone who we should be thinking about the EGFR mutation status, the ALK rearrangement status, or any other predictive markers for treatment? And we talked about this. I think the one thing is I think that when in doubt, biopsy, it's easy to do. And in our careers, we've all been surprised. We found myeloma in people's bones when we weren't expecting it. So when in doubt, biopsy. And I think the more reflexive testing we do in lung, the more often we're going to find ALK in people with a smoking history. In fact, we'll talk about a patient coming up who had a smoking history that you found an ALK in. 
And I think that the more reflexive testing, the more we're going to find it. Now, with that said, in a guy with a very heavy smoking history, I do think it's unlikely that we're going to find something that's actionable. But you don't know that, and any advantage we can give a patient is always helpful. From a practical standpoint, I wonder if I might ask, there are obviously concerns about where should we be sending these ALK analyses? Where should we be sending our EGFR receptor mutation analyses? Do you feel like there's significant heterogeneity in those labs or wherever it's available is the... I think there's a number of good commercial labs now that do both of those. And I think that the labs that contract with the individual hospitals or practices that you use, I think a number of commercial labs have been found to do them well. I think the ALK fish is a little tricky and most hospitals send that out to a commercial lab unless they have a really strong fish aficionado at their center. (laughs) So if we're sending it out, we can be comfortable with the results. I think so. Yes. You mentioned that he had problems with the cis olympta adjuvant therapy. What kind of problems? He had some prolonged count suppression, primarily thrombocytopenia, and he did struggle with asthenia during his treatment. He managed to work through the whole thing, but he was get dressed, get to work, drag himself home, get in bed. So did you talk with him today about where things are heading in terms of next treatment? We did. We talked in some general terms about Taxotere and Tarsiva and we talked a bit about prognosis and that it would be an uphill struggle to get to two years, although I suppose there is a tale there that's not unheard of. Any clinical research options that might be available to a person like this, Tom? So we did talk about this. There is a trial that I was very impressed with at ASCO this year, the trial with the archaeal compound, the MET inhibitor, given along with erlotinib that looked promising. Now, granted, it's a randomized phase two, and we need more time, and not every randomized phase two shows promise, but it particularly looked like it might help people either with squamous cell or, interestingly, patients with RAS mutations. So I think combination of MET inhibitor and EGFR might be interesting. And there are a number of centers that have trials of MET inhibitors on their own in phase two studies of previously treated lung cancer. So that was something we'd spoke about as a potential option. What about bevacizumab? Well, we did talk about that. That's something that I had considered. I think that it really gets to the question of is this first-line metastatic or second-line metastatic, and Dr. Lynch had astutely brought up that the second-line data with bevacizumab is not terrific, and so I think that's cogent advice for me, and whereas I probably would have considered it in the absence of today's activity, I think I'm less enthusiastic about it now. And I was also concerned about the adenosquamous histology Mm. as well. I tend to be, Neil and I are actually involved, Neil's been one of the leading authors in the ARI study, looking at the use of bevacizumab nationally. And we've been doing this together for four or five years now. And I think the one thing I've been struck with is how safe bevacizumab is when you're good at selecting patients. And the good news is docs around the country are really careful in who they treat it with. And as a result, the drug's very well tolerated. I know that some of those data were reported at ASCO, Tom. Can you just sort of capsulize what was seen there and compare to sort of what was seen in the trials? So what was seen is, in general, that being a central tumor isn't really a terrible risk factor. And so we have a little bit more safety in that area. It confirmed the feeling that you can use bevacizumab safely in patients with brain metastasis and patients with a need for anticoagulation, two really important subgroups of patients. And it's hard to get through a day as a lung cancer doctor and not see people who've got brain metastasis and on heparin or other reasons to be bleeding. But the questions that remain are, in patients who present with cavitation, what the impact of cavitation is. Neil, what is your thoughts from Aries in terms of the cavitation data? I've always been a bit confused on that point. 
I, I feel the same. I think it suffers a little bit from lack of numbers. Unfortunately, severe pulmonary hemorrhage has been a, a rare phenomenon. I'm also concerned about extrapolating the data and relative lack of increased risk from the ARIES data with cavitation to community practice because the incidence of very large cavitations was relatively low. And so I think in someone who had a very big cavitary lesion, I'd still be cautious, although a small cavitary lesion, I think we can be more comfortable. And I think the other key take-home message was age did not appear to be a major problem in ARIES. The ARIES database showed that you can give bevacizumab safely to people over 70, again, showing that docs are good at picking people who can tolerate this drug. And that's really what ARIES looks upon as what the use of the drug is like. And if you look at the numbers of complications, they're all lower than 4599 across the board. So as oncologists, I think we've done a pretty good job of selecting patients who will benefit from this treatment. Kind of reminds me of there was a similar registry kind of study done in colorectal cancer, the BRIGHT registry. And again, they saw that in practice, maybe less, if anything, complications once people had seen how to use the drug. What about this issue of second line in breast cancer? This has been debated, Tom. And finally, at the recent San Antonio breast cancer meeting, there was a study, the so-called ribbon tooth study with chemo bevacizumab that showed that it was effective. Is there some inherent reason to think that it would not be effective in second line? No, there's not. And the data in second line is not terrific. It's one isolated study. And I suppose you could make an argument for a patient who had not seen it first line, who didn't have any other contraindication. I don't think I would object dramatically if someone said, listen, let's try bevacizumab with chemotherapy in second line. I tend not to do that, but it's one of those situations where I don't think the There's certainly not a preponderance of evidence that says not to do it. I think the benefits in lung are pretty clearly defined in first line. I just think it's something that we have yet to define outside of that setting. I just wanted to come back to one other issue about the bevacizumab and safety and what we're learning about risk factors for pulmonary hemorrhage and histology in that on the one extreme in the adjuvant bevacizumab trial, uh, histology is not a exclusion criteria. And in someone like this, independent of how rapidly he's recurring, is it first line or second line, he's now recurred with actually really no dominant large nodules in the lung. He has very small centimeter, subcentimeter nodular disease. And with adenosquamous histology, is that something that we need to be concerned about? If somebody, for instance, even had squamous carcinoma with just very small volume in lung disease, is that something that would be well out of bounds? I personally have drawn the line at squamous. I really do think there's something about it, but you're right. Small nodular disease is going to be less of a worry than somebody who comes in with a big six centimeter squamous cell cavitary lesion. I think you probably will be safer. But again, now you're in the realm of me thinking, probably, as opposed to database and data-driven. I tend to draw the line on squamous cell in this setting.